is Queen Victoria, and welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer, I discuss several serial killers and something they have in common. I started the Families Who Murder Together series in the last two episodes by discussing the Callengers, and now I will be talking about Gordon Stewart Northcott, his mother Louise Northcott, and his nephew Sanford Clark. The murders took place between 1926 and 1928. There were four verified deaths, possibly up to 20 deaths that could not be proven. Stewart was aged 21 when he was caught, Sanford was 15, and Louise was 56. The murders happened in Wineville, near Riverside, California. The main book references are The Road Out of Hell, by Anthony Flacco with Jerry Clark, Nothing is Strange with You by James Jeffrey Paul, and then there were a few other books that I cross-referenced with. As always, I will list my references on the website, which is murderlabmedia.com. To kind of put you in the mindset of what was going on during this time period, so again, I said this was in late 1920s, so 1926 is when the murder started. So this time period, the phones were new, so not everyone had one, which I know is just almost unbelievable to think now. But it was a rare occurrence if someone had a phone. And it was common for, well, of common might be strong, but it wasn't unusual if people had unlisted numbers. Los Angeles was booming with the film industry, and it was growing with lots of jobs. Eugenics was a popular topic of the day. And if you're not familiar, it is basically talking about like genetic engineering to perfect the human race. That kind of thing is breeding out um, defects, defects and... Things like that, which is obviously where you start getting into real scary territory, um, especially when you think, you know, Hitler. But that was a very popular topic of the day. And not surprisingly, homosexuality was a big taboo. And it was seen as something that was just disgusting and uh, depraved. And they didn't really have a distinction between a pedophile and a homosexual. So if someone was a homosexual, it was just kind of like given that they would be a pedophile. So there was a lot of ignorance around it. And um, so it's important to keep those specific things in mind while when I plunge into this story. We begin with George and Louise Northcott from Canada. They had a daughter named Winifred, a son named Willie, and then they had a son named Gordon Stewart. Now, apparently they actually had five kids, but several of them died. Willie happened to die at six years old. The story goes as Winifred claims that when Willie died, her mom Louise completely freaked out, which is understandable. Shortly after she happened to get pregnant, so she was not happy, and supposedly she did not want him, and neither did George. Supposedly she even like would go horseback riding and she would jump up and down a lot, and she would basically do everything that they tell pregnant women not to do. And allegedly, George even punched her in the stomach or kicked her in the stomach at one point. But she wound up having the baby, and the baby was Gordon Stewart. So at first she hated him, but then she became obsessed with him. And that never changed. So that became abundantly clear. We know that part of the story is definitely true. She definitely did become obsessed with Gordon and Gordon Stewart. And he was clearly the favorite of the two kids. Now, Louise was a bully, and basically her husband George was broken. I guess he would fight back some, and then Louise would give him a look or put him in his place pretty quickly. So that kind of gives you an idea of their relationship. Winifred, or Winnie, she married a man named John Clark, and they had a daughter named Jessie, and sons Sanford, Kenneth, 
and Edwin. Not surprisingly, Winnie bullied John. So the family dynamics seem to be about the same in these two families. So in George and Louise's relationship, Louise was in charge and she kept him in place. So apparently she raised Winnie to be basically the same. So Winnie would keep John in his place. Another thing that both families had in common, besides cuckolding their husbands, are everyone did whatever Stuart wanted them to do. Everybody gave in to Stuart. Everyone bowed down to Stuart and would do whatever he said. So that is another really important detail. No one would deny Stuart. Some quick details about Stuart. People claim that Louise dressed him like a girl for a long time when he was young, but there are no pictures of it, so it's hard to prove whether that's actually true or not. Of course, it wasn't necessarily uncommon for people around that time period to dress their little boys like a girl for pictures and stuff. It was, you know, it was cute just to see a baby in that white little dress, but it wasn't necessarily, I think they claimed that she did it until he was like 12 or something. Who knows? They, um, again, this is the era where homosexuality was completely misunderstood. So it was, it would be easier for them to imagine and spread those rumors and to think that when there wasn't really any proof. It just kind of feeds into that idea that he's a monster and blah, blah, blah. Both parents would claim an accident had affected Stuart's brain throughout his life. And they used, you know, anything that can be an excuse for him, basically, they used. He played piano in a movie theater. He worked in a grocery store. He led a jazz band in a cafe. He loved music, literature, and movies. Uh, a little tidbit is... A Apparently, when he spoke with a neighbor at one point, Dr. Ernest Tracy, he casually, as he would in any kind of, you know, conversation with a neighbor, is, you know, I was just curious, have you ever wondered how to dispose of a body? And the guy, since he's a doctor, he knew about quicklime. So he told him about quicklime. So that's, that's a good little pin to put in that. So remember that. Now, there's not a whole lot of details of Stuart's childhood. It's actually even hard to pinpoint his exact birth date. Is some things say 1906. There's a few things that say 1908. It seems like the most common thing and then probably was that 1906. But as I said, it's hard to find a lot of details about his childhood. What we do know is that in 1924, they moved from Canada. George, Louise, and Stuart moved to Los Angeles, California. Winnie and her family stayed in Canada. At this point, Stuart became friends with Claude Scott and hung out with his family. He had a younger brother named Philip Scott, nicknamed Philly, who was 9 or 12. I couldn't find pinpoint the date, so the age, so somewhere around between 9 and 12. And on July 25th, 1925, Stuart was arrested for statutory rape of Philly. Charges were dropped, according to some, or he could have been put on probation. But at any rate, he was not, he didn't serve any time or anything like that. And then they said there was a homosexual scandal in 1926 where four boys were arrested. Now, Stewart wasn't one of them, but residents claimed to remember that he was involved. And they thought of him as the, quote, Sheik of Pasadena Avenue. Now, what exactly a homosexual scandal would entail in 1926? It could be, like I said, something innocent, blown out of proportion, or it could be something terrible. It's hard to tell. I, again, I, I couldn't find all the details for that. But the point is, is that Stuart possibly was affiliated with something else nefarious around that same time period. When Stuart was 19, he wanted a chicken ranch, because why not? And of course, no one would deny Stuart, so his parents bought him three acres of land in Wineville. And since his dad was a contractor, he and his workers did all the building. Not only did they just shell out some money for him, his dad actually took time to go out and 
build all this shit. And he had his workers build shit. They spent money on all this equipment. I just want you to imagine that. I can't personally imagine just going to my parents and being like, I want, you know, is I want something completely out of character and I want you to spend all this money and time and energy on this. I, I can't imagine my parents just going along with it. And I wouldn't want that to happen. It's It blows my mind. Anyway, so we're going to move forward, but just keep that in mind. They actually made him a chicken ranch, even though he never showed any kind of proclivity towards wanting to work hard at all. On the contrary, he played piano and he wanted to keep his hands soft. He wanted to, you know, he didn't want to have contorted hands from doing too much manual labor. So yeah, wrap your brain around that one. Now I'm going to take a second to go over the two main references because it's important moving forward what I ran into when I was doing the research. The main books were Nothing is Strange with You and The Road Out of Hell. Now The Road Out of Hell is by Sanford's adopted son and then a dude that he had write it. In the preface, Anthony Flacco does mention all of this, all of these documents that they went through, and I quote, the various deposition documents and evidence photographs that are referenced here are used as they apply to Sanford Wesley Clark and his personal condition not to the particulars of the criminal case against Gordon Stewart Northcott. So that's an important distinction to make. And the complete title of the book is The Road Out of Hell, Sanford Clark and the True Story of the Wineville Murders. For example, to really uh, underline it, the full title of the other reference is Nothing is Strange with You, The Life and Times of Gordon Stewart Northcott. So those are very important distinctions to make because The Road Out of Hell, Sanford Clark and the True Story, is obviously going to focus more on Sanford's point of view and the way that they interpret from that side. And then Nothing is Strange with You, The Life and Crimes of Gordon Stewart Northcott, is obviously going to focus more on him. For the most part, the books agree on things. But as you will see as I go through everything, you'll see that sometimes they do not match up. And another thing that's important to point out, I read an article where Flacco says that he wasn't writing a true crime nonfiction book. He was writing a psychological drama. So that's another important thing is he didn't, he was interested in getting the quote unquote truth out there. He wanted people to know the story. But when you read the book, it does read more like a drama. So there's a lot of conversations between Sanford and Stewart, and it's easy to get swept up into it. But then if you stop for a second, then you realize, okay, they don't really have these conversations recorded. So another thing that they note is that in The Road Out of Hell, they try to stay true to any... I guess embellishments might be a strong word, but any kind of liberties they took, they felt that they did it in the best spirit that encapsulated what probably happened based on all of the evidence they had. Those were a lot of words to say <laughs> that basically they did their best to, to stick to it as truly as they could without actually using quotes and things like that. I did have to keep in mind... I read the book technically twice. So the first time I read it, I just, I did get kind of engrossed in it. But then I, when I was going back and looking at it research-wise, I had to remind myself, okay, when this section happened, it may be more of like not a word-for-word -word recounting of Sanford actually going through that experience. It may just be an example of this might be how it went. Because I don't know how much Sanford actually told his stepson, I know that he went through the story, but he didn't really like to talk about it. So I got the impression that he just kind of said it once and then moved forward. But I mean, it's possible that Jerry got some more out of him and they didn't really talk about that much. But most of it seems like they don't say, 
Well, Sanford himself said this, except when it's coming to quoting from trials and stuff like that. So that book is more about the empathy that you would feel for Sanford and looking at it from more of an emotional perspective of what he went through. And I think that's important. And I'm glad that they did that. But from a research perspective, when you're trying to just say, you know, this is what happened, that's what happened, you know, that's not terribly helpful. I mean, it is to a certain extent. So I I kept that in mind when I was working on that. And I think that might help to explain some of the reasons why details vary later. But we'll get more into that as we go. I will say that I did enjoy the the character that they gave Stuart. I I don't know exactly how on point it was, but I will tell you, as soon as I started reading things that Stuart was saying in The Road Out of Hell, it totally reminded me of Billy Eichner. So he played Craig in Parks and Rec, and he's also the librarian in Bob's Burgers. Those are the main things I know him from. And the way that Stuart talked, it's just dead on. I can totally hear, um, I just always call him Craig because Parks and Rec. I can just hear him being Stuart in this, and I have to admit that that added an interesting little, <laughs> interesting little twist in there for me. This farm that they built, to give you an idea of what was around it, the closest house was 100 feet away, but it was mostly, it was empty most of the time. Another neighbor lived about an acre away, and then another neighbor lived two acres on the other side. The neighbor to the back lived an acre away. So basically they had at least an acre on each side as a buffer zone. So that's important to note as I move forward with the story. Stuart quickly decided that he can't do this farm by himself, so he went to Canada to speak with his sister Winnie and convince her to let him take Sanford with him. And at this time, Sanford Sanford is 13. In The Road Out of Hell, Sanford knew that Stuart was up to no good because he knew how Stuart was. He knew that Stuart never really thought of anyone but himself, and he was suspicious of his motivations. He didn't He didn't necessarily suspect criminal activity, but he just knew that it wasn't to be trusted. But Stuart was able to convince Winnie with no problem whatsoever. Winnie, again, according to The Road Out of Hell, Winnie was eager to have him out. Now, I guess he actually wanted Kenneth, too, which was his younger brother. But Kenneth was Winnie's favorite, so she's like, no, 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 take Sanford. At first, he made it sound like it was just going to be a road trip. But eventually, they admitted it's just going to be in the farm. In Notes on the Trial in the other book... He claims that he did not know what was going on, that he didn't didn't suspect anything. So I don't know, again, if in The Road Out of Hell there are some liberties taken there to try to get us more um, onto Sanford's side and to see, I don't know, see it from a different perspective. I'm not 100% sure. Or it could just be that he's a nervous kid on trial that misspoke. I don't know. Or maybe he didn't remember. Who the hell knows? At any rate, the point is he was able to take Sanford with Winnie's permission with him back to the States. First, they stopped in Los Angeles to visit Stewart's parents for a couple of weeks. Now, to get across the border, he had to lie to get Sanford across the border. So he did some kind of fancy talking, got Sanford across the border. So Sanford was here illegally, which was a huge card that Stewart would use against him, is no matter what, he would say, well, you're here illegally, so no matter what happens, there's nothing you can do because you'll get thrown in jail. While they were visiting Stewart's parents, Sanford's grandparents, there was a moment when he quote, started putting his mouth all over Sanford while he played with himself. And Stuart said, if you tell anyone, you're going to go to jail and it'll be a lot worse than anything that's going to happen with me. Nothing like that had ever happened to Sanford. 
he did not know how to handle it. He didn't know how to wrap his mind around it. And I mean, he's alone and grandma and grandpa, his grandma barely tolerated him and his grandpa basically just ignored him. So he didn't really have any allies and he's in literally another country from his family. Then he's taken to the farm, which is 40 miles away from Stuart's parents. He thought maybe things would get better, but during the very first week, Stuart raped him. Apparently he started gently, but then when Sanford recoiled, Stuart bludgeoned him, dragged him into the tent, and when he took off his clothes, I'm quoting from the book, he looked like he was wearing long underwear made out of body hair that reached from his neck to his ankles. Now, it had been dark in Los Angeles, so he didn't see anything really when things happened there. So this was the first time he saw Stuart in all his hairy hairiness. This is the first time that there was actual penetration. There was also verbal threats and physical blows, and then he threw him in the coop. George would visit on Sundays and help do work around the farm and bring his workers with him. And the first week on the farm, they lived in a tent because the house wasn't built yet. Stuart would sleep on the cot. Sanford would sleep on the ground. And when George was there, Stuart would still keep the cot, and then George and Sanford would sleep on the ground. So just to reiterate, George at this point is in his 60s. So he's 60 and he's letting Stuart sleep on the cot while he sleeps on the ground. Again, they just would let Stuart do whatever he wanted. They built a house, a garage. There was a total of six chicken units. There are rabbit hutches, a goat house, a brooder house, grain house, and then hen runs. There were hundreds of laying hens, a duck pond, and a goat for weeds. He made it a point to never molest or beat Sanford when George was around. And he creepily called Sanford, my new darling. That actually raises the bile in my throat. There became a pattern where Sanford would get up at 5.30 or 6 in the morning, water and feed the chickens, and make them breakfast. Then he'd get Stuart up. And of course, Stuart never helped around the farm. Stuart didn't want him to socialize. Sometimes a, a couple of neighbor boys would come over, but not too often because Stuart did not like him to be, obviously didn't want him to be talking to anybody or socializing with anybody. He would rape Sanford two or three times a week, sometimes more. He physically abused him with anything, including a club or his belt, both ends of the belt. One time he hit him with a club on the head and he got a, and Sanford got a scar. Sanford had scars on his body from other beating, from all kinds of beatings. There was one time that Stuart even threw a butcher knife at him. So once again, this poor kid, 13 years old, away from home, has no one to turn to, and these awful things are happening to him. So this, this would be about as bad as you would think that it could get if you were him, because you couldn't even imagine it ever, ever possibly, this ever possibly happening. So you would think, well, how could this get any worse? On top of the abuse, he did, after four months, he was going to let Sanford ride home, but... He had specific things that he had to say. He had to say he's going to school. He's in the Boy Scouts. Um, he didn't really have to help much on the ranch because Stuart was doing it all. Well, Sanford didn't want to agree to that. He didn't want to sign it and send that lie to his family. So one of the punishments Stuart would do is he had a little pit in one of the chicken coops where he would put him in this pit, sometimes chained his foot changed so he can't get out. And then he put a board over him. And sometimes there'd be things on top of the board so he couldn't push the board off. So he would stick him in there so it was very claustrophobic and obviously scared the shit out of him. And he'd leave him there for a long time. I don't, it never really said how long, but it would be hours. So basically he gave in and agreed to sign the letter. His family would get letters, but they would be, you know, the pre-approved corporate message of everything's great, Stuart's the best. At one point, 
he did try to run away one night. He walked and walked and walked. But this is this is like desert area too. So as he was walking, he just kept thinking of all the reasons that it was hopeless. He's this young boy that had been abused by his uncle. So he was, you know, the first thought is, of course, I'm here illegally. Not knowing exactly how the law works and not understanding that what was being done to him wasn't always his fault, you know, because sometimes when bad things happen, sometimes you think that maybe you're shitty enough that it, you it was supposed to happen to you. So there's this whole mentality that can just spiral. And he could think of all these reasons why it was futile. Like he figured, well, Stuart will find me. So he finally just gave up and went back. And since he did this at night, he didn't think there was any way that Stuart would know that he even had done it and thought about running away. But then he woke up in the middle of the night by Stuart pouring boiling water on his back. So he had this big triangular scar from where Stuart had burned him with boiling water because he figured out that Sanford had tried to run away. Now, I don't 100% know if Stuart knew that he tried to run away. That was the only book that I saw that him was a road out of hell. I mean, they do say in the trial that he burnt him, but I don't, they didn't specifically say it's because he tried to run away. I think that Stuart could have even just done it as a warning. Like, you know, like he would guess that he tried to run away because of course he's going to think about running away. So even if he hadn't actually tried to run away, he could have just called his bluff, you know, and just, just as a warning, I know that you've thought about running away because that's a given. So I'm going to burn you to try to burn that out of you. Then it actually did start to get worse. Stuart would run off and he would bring young boys to the farm back with him. Apparently, he specifically liked Mexican boys. And he would say, and I quote, he was going away for fresh meat. There were about 10 or 12 times that he brought boys back and let them go, according to Sanford. At one point in The Road to Out of Hell, he did say he kind of ran out of, he lost count of how many times it happened. When he had boys there, he would take them in the house and cover the windows from inside with blankets or sheets. He would be in there for like an hour and a half. So Sanford would be outside. When he, he would try to peek in and see what was going on and see if maybe he could try to figure out if there's any way he could help. But he couldn't see inside. It would happen once a week. And then sometimes he would go for a long period without bringing any boys back. So it was kind of uh, off and on. He wouldn't touch Sanford when a boy was there. So as you can imagine, it was probably a terrible feeling inside of where you're thankful that he's not touching you. But then you know, and you personally know what that other boy is going through. So you don't want it happening to you, but you don't want it happening to the other person. And, you know, he's young, he's small, and Stuart had a huge advantage over him. So he felt like there wasn't really anything that he could do physically to try to help. Stuart would keep the boys' eyes covered when he brought them there so they couldn't see how he, how he brought them. This new burden was on Sanford of Stuart bringing boys home. Then one day, it was February 1st, 1928, Stuart said he was going to run to L.A., and when he came home, he pulled a bucket out of the car, shows it to Sanford, and there is a head in the bucket. It had long, dark hair and dark skin. He said he had killed a Mexican because he knew too much. He left the body by the road near Puente because he had no place else to put it. In The Road Out of Hell, they said that Stuart claimed he was visiting a Mexican friend on a mining property when a guy shows up with a gun because apparently he wanted to take some, he wanted to burgle him. Well, the guy with the gun didn't see Stu and Stu wanted to protect his friend, so he shot the guy with the gun. So really, 
of course, he's a hero. So in both books, he does have Sanford start a bonfire and have Sanford burn the head. He did strip the body naked and burn the clothes as well. After the head had been burning for hours, he had Sanford put it back in the pail and he either broke it up with an axe or with a fence post and then Stuart took the bu bucket away and disposed of the, I almost said ingredients, but that's not the, that's probably not the best word to use there, the contents of the bucket. Then of course, <sighs> Stuart wanted to go visit his parents and give them a version of the story just in case someone came calling for this by for the body because there's still a body out there so he's worried you know someone's gonna find that body I need to have some kind of corroboration or some kind of story that someone else has can back up so he and Sanford go to George and Louise and Sanford does most of the talking this is the story that Stuart came up with and had Sanford tell the short version from Nothing is Strange with You is Stuart had hired this guy. He found the guy stealing in his house. He threatened Stuart with a knife when he was caught stealing. So Sanford shot him. Stuart fainted. And then Sanford cut the head off. So, okay, there's that. Now, this is my favorite. In The Road Out of Hell, this is the version that they told George and Louise. So again, there's, they hired this dude. The dude's on the property. He was stealing. Stu found him. The guy charges Stuart, who had a gun. Sanford grabs a gun. The dude throws a knife towards Stuart. So Stuart shoots him in the head, okay? And I believe he's the 38 that he has. Shoots him in the head. Guy's still alive. So Stuart shoots him four more times in the head. Guy is still alive. So Sanford shoots him in the chest with a 22. Still alive. So Sanford grabs an axe. Hits him in the head three times. Still alive. So naturally, of course, Stuart shoots him in the head four more times. Still alive. <laughs> so Stuart decides, well, let's give the axe a try again. So he stabs him in the head with the axe. And that finally, finally does it. I think this guy uh, was given Rasputin to run for his money, if this, is, if this is true. Oh, there's more, though. So Stuart then, of course, takes off... The man's clothes, so it's harder to ID him. They got some feed stacks. Stuart and Sanford cut off his head with a saw. Stuart did three strokes of, with the saw, and Sanford finished it off with two more strokes. They put the head in the bucket, then they dumped the body alongside the road. Before they dumped the body, they saw a fruit stand. So they stopped and bought fruit, and then they dumped the body, and then they went to uh, visit the parents. And then, after they tell Louise and George this story, Stuart and Louise go to a movie. There's a similar story that he actually tells the cops. At the trial, the cop goes to the confession that Stuart gave to him. I mean, I have to say that he did stick pretty closely with his stories when it comes to this one. So again, he says the guy was in the house, stealing, threatened him with a knife. Stuart pointed the gun. The knife was thrown. Stuart shot him in the forehead, shot him four times in the head, still alive. Four more times in the head, still alive. Sanford shoots him, still alive. Axe, two or three times, still alive. This time... He says he turned the radio on so people couldn't hear the guy screaming. Then they have an axe to the head and he dies. Then they take off his clothes. They put three blankets on him as opposed to the sacks at this point. They put blankets on him. They go over and make sure the neighbors didn't hear. They just kind of go over and like, hey, how's everybody doing? And no one's like, hey, what was that ruckus? So they figured they're safe. No one heard anything. At that point, Sanford burns the clothes. They both cut the head off with the axe. Stu faints. 
They put the head in the bucket. They take the body. They do buy fruit again. They dump the body with sacks. There, so there are sacks in there again. And they go to the parents' house. He saw, saw a movie with his mom, took Sanford home, buried the head, and then he actually reburied the head three or more times over the next day, next few days. He had George and Louise bring lye for the chickens. He claimed that some chickens died and they were had a messy death. I don't know. So we had them bring lye for the chickens and they helped him clean the blood up. So... Then later, they tried to burn the head, and they hit it with an axe. It wouldn't break, though. Then they drove it 20 miles into the desert and buried it. Then on August 26th, he dug it up, put it in a lime barrel, and reburied it. I think one of my favorite things is that in two of these instances, Stu admits that he fainted, or he says that he fainted. In most of the cases, he looks kind of like a hero. Like, he's, he's shooting, and he's... You know, he's taking charge. My friend was going to die, so I shot him. And this guy wasn't dying, so I shot him and I hit him with an axe. And he's got all this action and, you know, manly and testosterone. And then, oh, I fainted. And it seems incongruous, you know. But I got to thinking, Stuart is obviously all about drama. So he would not see it necessarily as a flaw that he would faint. He would see it as, oh, it's the height of dramas. You know, as, as I, I had so much emotions and I was so en- engrossed in the moment that, that everything overtook me and I fainted and, and it would actually show, oh, I've got feelings and, you know, and I couldn't finish sawing the head off. So Sanford helped me. So see, I do have emotions. And it's fascinating that he, he's able to, he's able to concoct all these things. It just, it blows my mind. In addition to his story, we can kind of see where he gets this because at, at the trial, his mother Louise said that she is the one that shot the guy. The guy came at her with a knife and when she shot him, his head was nearly off. So she went ahead and finished cutting it off with a saw. George helped her dispose of the body. They told Stuart and Sanford what happened. And then she's like, oh shit, I forgot the head. And then they go back to the farm and bury it. They have the farm. So you can kind of see where he gets his penchant for storytelling. Because she's able to also throw some shit out there and see if it sticks. And even if it doesn't stick, she's going to stick to it. So, (laughs) well, actually, no, they don't really ever stick to completely to any of their stories, really. You'll see more as we go. Now, the body was found February 2nd. So the next day after he had brought the head home in the bucket, the body was found. A farmer was driving down the, the road and his dog was next to the car, you know, run next to the car. And then the dog started barking. So the farmer stops and he sees an arm sticking out of a ditch. He goes a little closer and he sees a body covered in a sack from the shoulders down. It's got no head. So you could see a cut had severed the neck and then there was a bullet hole beneath the right nipple. It turns out it was a Mexican male, 18 years old. He was nude. And when they did the autopsy and they inspected him, it, he did not appear to have been sodomized. They never did identify him. Now it's a little confusing because technically in all these books and all the references, they call this the headless Mexican, which, you know, that does seem kind of... At one point, you see him referred to as Alvin Gothia, and then later Stewart calls him Jose Gonzalez. If you see Alvin Gothia, we can't guarantee that's actually his name. There was no proof that that was actually who that was. They could never identify him. That's just what Stewart called him. And like, you know, with the flippant Jose Gonzalez... Like, let's just be stereotypical and call him whatever, which, fucking asshole. After that horrendous event, nine-year-old Walter Collins went missing on March 10th, 1928. He went to see a movie and disappeared. What actually happened is Stuart took him back to the farm. Sanford said he stayed out of the house for two days and nights. Stuart woke him up early in the morning and said that Walter was inside tied to a bed 
and they had to soundproof a coop as well as possible because their mom is coming. He had told her that there were some sick hens. He had dog chains and he wanted Sanford to wash Walter up and then chain him up in this soundproof coop. Apparently, Louise had taken some time off, so she came and stayed for two days. She finds Walter on the third day. Her reaction was, as you would expect, we need to kill him. That's right. They let Stuart do whatever the fuck he wanted. To the point where she realized, my son has a boy that he's obviously doing terrible things to, and my boy could get into trouble. So we need to kill this other boy. Someone else's son we have to kill to protect my son. And it's a child. He's nine years old. In her mind, the best way to do it would be to use an axe because it's quiet. And naturally, all three of them had to strike a blow. That way, all three of them are culpable. And they can't say, well, only Louise did it. It was, well, Louise hit him, but Stuart hit him, and so did Sanford. So all three of us did it. No one's going to go to the cops because we're all incriminated with it. In The Road to Hell, he was asleep. Louise did the first strike. Sanford put up a fight, so Stuart cut his arm. So Sanford did the next strike, and then Stuart did it. Then Sanford dug the grave while he was gagging and vomiting. According to Nothing is Strange with You, it was Stuart, Sanford, and then Louise that struck the blows. So it's the order is a little bit different. Uh, he was buried in the hen house. Now, of course, Louise had another version of it. She said a boy showed up one night and asked to stay over. She put him on a cot in the hen house. In the morning, Stuart couldn't get the car fixed. So the boy stayed again, but he got sick. She went to check on him and saw Sanford leaving the hen house. And when she went in, the boy was dead. Then later in the trial, she said, oh, I found him with his head crushed in, but he wasn't dead. So I hit him with an axe to end his suffering. But then later she said that didn't actually happen. So all over the place. Stuart on trial said that Walter had to die because he saw Stuart kill someone. A minor friend was being held up. So he had to shoot him and Walter saw. So again, he's consistent. There's a minor again. <laughs> he has common themes in his stories. He said Walter's body had been under the hen house for a week. Then he opened the grave up, put in quicklime, and recovered it. Later, he dug him up, burned him, and carried him away. Another version <laughs> that Stuart said, he told a cop that he had actually given Walter ether and then shot him. And then Louise hit him over the head with an axe. So we have all kinds of versions of the stories. I tend to believe more the ones that Sanford would say because he's less prone to exaggeration and drama. Just so we can try to wrap our minds again this, around this again. Stuart's mom shows up at the farm and finds a boy on the farm. And she helps to kill him. So at this point, she's made, definitely made Sanford an accomplice, albeit an unwilling one. And then, of course, she's an accomplice and then there's Stuart. So the three of them are now officially have, has killed as a family. A few months later, in May, on May 16th, 1928, 12-year-old Lewis Winslow and 10-year-old Nelson Winslow went to a model yacht club where they built models of yachts in Pomona. They disappeared. Stewart brought them home, told Sanford to fix up a hen house with bedding and water. He had him nail the door from the outside. Stewart had a hammer inside so he could pry it open when he wanted to get out. The next night, he moved them into the incubator house because it had thicker walls and a padlocked door. He would have Sanford 
change the sheets, empty the bucket, bring food and water. According to The Road for Out of Hell, Nelson the younger boy was talkative, but Lewis was defeated and angry, as you can imagine. They were there about a week and a half, during which time the boys would draw and play cards. One of the boys had brought a library book, so he had that. True to form, Stuart had them write a letter, and by had them write a letter, he wrote a letter, where he sent to the boys' parents saying, we went to Mexico, 10 and 12 year olds. They went to Mexico, so don't worry about us, because that's apparently common. And then they sent, he had sent a second letter saying that they were okay. He had Sanford dig a grave. This is another, this is another case where it's really hard to tell 100% what happened, but I'll tell you what I know. In The Road Out of Hell, he had Sanford take Lewis in the house so Stuart could convince Nelson not to tell on them if they were let go. So he was making it look like he was going to let the boys go. First, he had to talk to the younger boys so that way the younger boy would understand the gravity of the situation and not to tell if they if he's let go. So they figure, well, we'll convince him and then it'll be easier, easy to convince the older boy. Sanford and Stuart are alone with Nelson, but then Stuart hit Nelson in the head with a hatchet and then he clubbed Sanford with a blunt end when Sanford cried out. They dropped Nelson's still alive in the grave and then the same thing happened with Lewis. This time, Stuart made Sanford hit Lewis first in the head with a hatchet, and then they dropped him still alive in a grave. They covered it in dirt and straw, and then they moved some chickens in there to cover the smell that would inevitably come after a few days. Nothing is strange with you basically gives the same account, except it adds a detail that they tried to kill the older boy with ether, but he came out of it too soon. So then they proceed to do the, the thing where they separate them and then kill them with, with a hatchet and an axe and they put him in the grave still alive. They do mention in Nothing is Strange with You that they also burned their things. Of course, there was another version that Stewart gave to a cop, and on trial, it came out. He said, Sanford killed the younger boy because he had abused him. Now, Sanford, he says Sanford had abused the young boy and the young boy wouldn't stop crying. So Sanford killed him. Now, Stewart, of course, had tried to calm the young boy and he had tried to keep him safe, but he couldn't stop Sanford from killing him. And Stewart was so overcome with emotions that he kept the body in the house for three days. During those three days, the older brother was wondering what happened to his younger brother and he was getting unruly. So then Stuart had to kill him. So again, we see a version where Stuart is showing his soft side and now it's Sanford being the big baddie. And you know, that just, it doesn't fit at all that Sanford would do these things, but he's trying, he's trying whatever he can try. Now we come to a point that is particularly frustrating research-wise. In Nothing is Strange with You, this is the account of the Dahl family, D-A-H-L. Jacob Dahl and his wife, Ella, had four sons. Jacob had been ill and had to go to the Salvation Army for help. So uh, I'm assuming at that time the Salvation Army did like an employment thing and would help people find jobs. Now their sons were 8, 12, 14, and 15. So this is pretty much in Stewart's demographic of victims. Stewart had been there looking to hire someone. One of the workers suggested Doll. He goes to the dollhouse. <laughs> goes to the dollhouse. Sorry. <laughs> Only Jacob was there. So he claims his name is Mr. Craig and that Jacob knew his wife, Mrs. Craig. Stewart, or uh, Mr. Craig, said he's a private secretary to Mrs. Rowan, who of course is rich. Well, then later in the conversation, he says his brother is actually the secretary, but he's doing his brother a favor. Mrs. Rowan had lots of extra money that she'd like to use for charity. They had a ranch that they needed someone to help take care of, so they would pay him $150 a month, let him live, him and his family live in the house free of charge, and then eventually, at the new year, he'd get a two dollars to $300 bonus. 
It's possible he, he could get a promotion later for another 300 to 350 a month. He would also give him a line of credit at the furniture store to help him furnish the house. This poor man who is has been sick, he's got this big-ass family to take care of. Now, to me, having four kids is a big-ass family. And this is, work was hard to come by. This was about around the Great Depression. In comes this guy who is basically like this beacon of hope that is basically saying, is like throwing money at him, basically. So, of course, they're excited. And, you know, of course, they want to do it. The job would be he would work in a cookhouse. Now, Jacob had managed a restaurant and he'd been a cook. So this was perfect. At one point, Stewart brought a woman named Mrs. Mayo, which was later identified as his, as his mom. And they take Jacob and Ella to the farm to check it out. Mrs. Mayo was apparently Mr. Craig's aunt, and she told them her son was at the farm, and he was about 14 years old. So, <laughs> try to keep this all straight. Stuart is Mr. Craig. Mrs. Mayo is Louise, Stuart's mom, but is pretending to be his aunt. Sanford is her grandson. She's saying is her son. I need a chart. I don't know. They love to be convoluted and see this is this is weird but apparently it was 11 o'clock at night and they made them a meal i don't know if that's common but when they take him to the farm it's dark they're making them a meal now Stuart had apparently told sanford that he planned to kill the parents so that way he'd be able to have his way with the boys Stuart was going to kill the dad outside and then the mom he had sanford go ahead and dig a grave and before he left to go pick the family up he got his guns and axes ready Stuart and Louise had told him to stay outside while they ate so he could be a lookout. Stuart kept coming out to check on the grave and making sure everything was in place. He told the dolls that Mr. Peterson, the efficiency expert, was outside and he wanted to meet them, but he had to work on a pump. And then at some point, Stuart had to go outside to work on an engine and he came back in dirty. Again, this is 11 o'clock at night. I don't know why everybody would be working on everything. I guess if a pump breaks, you have to work on it, no matter the time. I don't know. If things didn't already seem a little weird, when Louise handed Ella her peaches, there were capsules floating on top. And she was kind of like, hey, look at these capsules. So Louise took them and said, oh, they're blah, blah, blah. The wife on trial, she didn't remember what Louise said they were, but basically she kind of blew it off. And I guess the woman didn't think it was weird enough that she went ahead. Although, I mean, I don't know. I guess I don't know what she could do since they were her ride. Maybe she was afraid to still be impolite, even though they might be trying to fucking poison her. Who knows? Well, she did say that she noticed that Stuart wasn't eating, but he had been saying how famished he was. And then when he saw her looking at him, he would pretend to eat. Then all of a sudden he's like, okay, well, you're hired. Mr. Peterson doesn't need to see you. And let's let's go ahead and take you home and we'll work out the details. When he left, Sanford realized that Stuart decided not to kill them because he'd been worried this whole time that he wouldn't be able to pull it off. On the way to taking them home, Stuart apparently told them that Mrs. Rowan, who, again, that's his brother's employer, who's rich. Her husband, of course, is a prince. And then instead of dropping them off at home, he dropped them off near a hospital where he's doing charity work with orphans. Well, then a few days later, they got a call from Louise that Mrs. Rowan's husband had died. And so she couldn't hire anyone for a year. She hadn't heard from Mr. Craig. Well, the wife wondered how Mrs. Mayo got their number if Craig hadn't talked to them. Well, right when she asked her that, Mrs. Mayo said, oh, uh, Craig just came in. What do you know? So then Mr. Craig, which we know is Stuart, gets on the phone and says, yeah, I'm sorry. I can't, you know, I can't do this right now. We'll keep you in keep in touch. And the wife makes a comment to her husband later that she noticed at one point that Mrs. Mayo had called Mr. Craig Stewart, and that wasn't apparently the name that she had been calling him. Mrs. Dahl realized something was fishy with this, which is, is good that she let it go, 
it still really pisses me off that they gave this family all that hope and then nothing happened with it. So they kind of jerked him around. Although, it is good that they didn't kill him. I don't want to forget that part of it. I mean, it is important to note that they didn't kill them. But it also pisses me off that he, they were jerked around like that. In The Road Out of Hell, this is the thing that really gets me. In Nothing is Strange with You, Mrs. Dahl, it's being quoted from the trial. So that leads me to believe she was there. She identified that Mrs. Mayo was Louise. And the husband identified Gordon Stewart Northcott was actually Mr. Craig. And there's all kinds of sources cited in the book. So I have confidence that it went the way that they said. But in The Road Out of Hell, when they talk about the Dahl family, Sanford dug the grave, but he decided not to help anymore. He had already made the conscious decision, I'm not going to do anything else. Well, Stuart brings the couple and their four sons to the house, saying he was going to hire them to take care of the ranch. Stuart told Sanford to take the boys to the rabbit hutches, and then he'd ambush the rents. He would shoot the dad first and then the mom. And then he figured the two older boys would try to, would come running and then he would shoot those two and that would leave the two younger boys that would be easier for them to manage sanford refused so stewart hit him in the head with a shovel he put him in the pit with the chain and covered him with a board well while he's in the pit he hears them getting into the car and leaving and sanford realized he had saved them so a couple elements of the same stewart did bring at least brought the couple to the house he was going to kill the parents and then he changed his mind so those things match with what's nothing and nothing is strange with you. But there is absolutely no mention of Louise. So that's weird to me because you would think that that would just really drive home to bring up that detail because it shows how he had two grownups against him. But instead, it just focuses on him and Stuart, which makes sense because the whole point is that whole chapter, that whole section, he decides not to help anymore. So then when he refuses, Stuart doesn't feel like he can go through with it without his help. So he saved the family. So poetically and artistically and cathartically, I guess, that's the important part in the Road Out of Hell story when you're telling Sanford's story. The important thing is we're talking about Sanford's feelings and what Sanford went through. So this was an important moment to him. And it's not necessarily, well, these are all of the actual facts of what happened. And the gist is, Stuart was planning on killing some parents to get to some kids. So that is agreed upon in both sources. So that is the bottom line. And I guess that's the biggest detail to take away from it. It blows my mind that Louise would be involved with that. I I kind of get the, I happen upon my son having a prisoner and I need to protect my son. So if I'm a, the type of person who would protect my son at all costs when he's in a bad situation, I kind of get the, okay, let's get rid of the person and get rid of the evidence. But as far as going along with a whim of, I want to take a family and kill some parents and it, it kind of... It's a lot to wrap my brain around, but if you think of how she obviously also likes drama and she will obviously do whatever the fuck she can do to keep Sanford happy, I think there might have been a part of her that liked being an actress. You know, she liked playing the role. She had fun with pretending that she was this other person to Stuart. And, and I don't know if she would have even thought of it as far as I'm setting up this scenario for something terrible to happen. I think that she could have justified it as she's so terrified of Stuart, she cannot say no to Stuart, so if she has to do something to, to go along with him, she's going to make it a game. She's going to do something psychologically to make it easier for her to be able to do those steps. So let's make it a game. So it kind of just became like fun little pretend that she was doing with her son. So it's been about two years now that Sanford's been on the farm. There's been some letters back home to Canada to his 
mom, dad, and sister. They specifically focus on those three because the, the brothers are younger and they're not as involved in this, this story at this point. Jesse is 19 now. They were all getting a little concerned because he hasn't really written a whole lot. And the stuff that he wrote, it really didn't show any improvement in his education and it just didn't seem right. It seems like Winnie really didn't care as much, at least according to everything that I saw, is it was mostly the dad, John, and then the sister, Jessie. They seemed to be more worried about him. Jessie had actually been saving up to go visit. She arrived in California, July 26, 1928. She sent a telegram, but no one met her. So she called Louise and was like, what's up? Louise said, all right, Stuart's going to come get you. He comes the next morning and he did receive the telegram, but he didn't want her there. So he had basically ignored her. While Jessie was visiting, she was going to write a letter to their mom, but Sanford said, if you're writing a letter, make sure that you mail it yourself. Don't let it go anywhere near Stuart. And then he admitted that Stuart had written all those letters. Stuart wouldn't leave them alone at all because he didn't want Sanford to tell Jessie anything. Well, of course, when they're in bed, Jesse sneaks into Sanford room, Sanford's room and was asking him questions. And Sanford didn't want to say anything because he was afraid of the repercussions that Stuart might end up hurting Jesse. And he didn't want that. But, you know, he's a young he's still a young, frightened kid. And his older sister's there, someone that loves him. And he he needed to talk to somebody. He did wind up saying, admitting that Stuart had done bad things to him, that he would kill them if Stuart found any letters that they were writing that divulged any kind of information. And he admitted that he did most of the work around the farm. She said she'd help him leave, but he's like, there's no way. And she's like, well, what's the big deal? And he said, that's when he admits, okay, he's killed some people. He's killed some boys, boys around this farm. And he tells her about Walter Collins and the Winslows and then the headless and unidentified teenager. She ended up staying for a week. Stuart took them on a trip. So basically he was just trying to do anything he could to fill the time and keep them from being able to talk to each other. He slept with a revolver by the bed and she saw bullet holes in the wall. He told her that he was going to get Stephen Black to take Sanford's place because Sanford's voice was changing. So he was implying Sanford's getting too old, so he was going to find somebody to replace him. They went to visit Louise and George for a couple of weeks. Sanford came to visit. Jesse took this as an opportunity to get him to escape. She sent him to a friend, and then she actually convinced George to help. So George actually took him then to another friend. Well, Stuart and Louise went looking for him because, you know, as soon as Stuart realized that Sanford was missing, he's like, what the fuck? So he goes looking around. They go to the ranch to start getting rid of evidence because they assume the worst. He assumes he immediately went and was tattling on him. Well, August 5th, Jesse heard Stuart and George arguing. Stuart got a gun and then he ran out the door and got Sanford and took him back to the ranch. Let that sink in for a second. He was almost free. In The Road Out of Hell, he does say that he didn't ever really expect to be free that he figured Stuart would find him some way or another so he didn't allow himself to hope. So then they came up with another plan where George and Jesse were going to take Sanford from the farm because Stuart was gone and Louise had left. So George and Jesse show up at the farm and Stuart was there. Jesse said she wanted to take Sanford so Stuart punches her in the face and then he brings up the minor story. How he shot a man who was about to shoot his friend and a boy saw so Sanford had to stay because he knew about the guy being shot and minor minor I don't know his big heart on with minors but I don't know it's kind of fun I guess I don't have any minor stories maybe I should bring them up more often. Stuart gave Sanford some bus money at this point they're back at the grandparents house in Los Angeles. Stuart gave Sanford bus money because he needed Sanford to go back to the ranch to meet a 
guy about a new incubator. Well, Jesse saw that as another opportunity to get him out of there. She convinced George one more time, help him get money so he can run away. Basically, the idea was she would get on a train and then Sanford would sneak into a train and then they would meet and then she would take him back to Canada. Well, in one version, George ran into Stuart while he was trying to sneak Sanford on the bus, so Stuart took him to the ranch. In The Road Out of Hell, Sanford said that he made the conscious decision not to get on the train. That he could have, but he didn't because he knew that there wasn't any way it was ultimately going to work. He knew there would be some way. I mean, Stuart's already found him once, and he figured he's just a liability to Jesse. And if she can get away on her own without getting hurt, anything worse than punched, then he's not going to endanger her anymore, and... He's a lost cause, so he's just going to stay. I don't know ultimately which one really happened, if it's that Stu found him again, or he decided not to go. Either way, it sucks, because he was still stuck at the ranch. Here's another point where things get a little fuzzy. In Nothing is Strange with You, after Jesse left, they just knew that Jesse's was going to blab. So they went ahead and started selling things from around the farm. He sold most of it to S.S. Howell's store, and his story to the store owner was his 17-year-old wife ran off with a 55-year-old neighbor and took their two kids. Louise was there and commented on what a terrible wife she was, this 17-year-old harlot. And this is from the trial. S.S. Howell was telling the story. Well, about 10 days passed, and Jesse had reported to the American consul in Vancouver that Stuart had smuggled Sanford in illegally, he was mistreating him, his life was danger, and that Stuart was a murderer. On August 30th, Los Angeles cops received a telegram that they needed to go check on it. They found his parents' address where supposedly Stuart was living, and Louise told them about the ranch. So apparently she freaks out, and then they said, oh no, this is just about an automobile accident, so we just need to talk to him about that, it's no big deal. So she calmed down and said, okay, well this is where the thing is. Stuart Sanford and Stephen Black, which I mentioned earlier, he had told Jesse he was going to run off with, uh, Stephen Black was actually the son of a mechanic that they used, and we'll get to him more in a little bit. They were all at the ranch packing things up. Well, two detectives drive up, Stuart sees, and he runs away. So they take Sanford in the cust into custody. Now, it is quite different in The Road Out of Hell. In that book, Louise, Stuart, and George pack in a frenzy, so they're still packing, and nothing is strange. Stuart's during the packing and getting rid of things, but in Road Out of Hell, it's all three of them packing. So Louise, Stuart, and George are all at the farm, packing like crazy. They didn't have time to sell the ranch, the neighbors were coming and buying the farm equipment for like nothing, and they're just basically grabbing the animals, and they left Sanford saying they'd be back after getting supplies. They didn't come back. He was on the farm several days before cops finally came. So that's another big difference where in the other one, Stuart is packing and taking time to get rid of stuff. And then cops come and he runs away. In the Sanford version, the three people are there on the farm and they ditch him. So there's a little bit of a different picture there. I mean, in both, Stuart fucking runs away. But it is interesting that they show that the three main people in his life are the ones that ditch him in The Road Out of Hell. So I think that's more, again, where that shows it's more poetic and it's more dramatic to have them as a unit actively leave him behind. Whereas I'm assuming what actually happened was the cops came up and Stuart ran. At any rate, Stuart ran and apparently they were all supposed to meet back up. And George decided to stay home because he's like, fuck you guys, so you go do your thing and 
I'm staying here. So George stays, and then Stuart went ahead and left, and then later Louise leaves. They wind up in Canada. George gets arrested. Then Winnie actually joins Louise and Stuart on the run. So instead of going to the States to be with her devastated son, she runs off with the people who harmed him. So once again, we see how everything lines up with the family is where the alliances are. Louise and Winnie will always side with Stuart. Winnie eventually winds up turning herself in. Stuart and Louise decide to split up. They both get arrested on that same day. Stuart threw a fit on a ship because they wouldn't take American money. Because, again, they're in Canada. People are looking because he's pitching a fit. Well, he's been all over the fucking news. So they recognize him and he gets turned in. Ironically, (laughs) Louise did basically the same thing. She tries to use American money... And the thing is, it was a $50 bill, which is, is, you know, a big bill back then. Basically, she's just like, look at me. I'm doing something illegal. Pay attention. People were looking, and she got recognized and was arrested. Stuart was pleading innocence, of course, but she right off the bat was like, all right, I killed Walter. Jessie actually did come back to California so she could be with Sanford. They searched the farm, and they, they did find where Sanford had said that there were some graves dug dug up. They did find those. There were some blood in some of the graves. They didn't find any bodies, but apparently they found foot bones, finger and toenails, human flesh and hair. Uh, they found an incompletely formed human tooth in the Winslow grave, a juvenile tooth and a piece of cloth, which was identified as the younger Winslow boy's clothing. Across the street, there was a, another lime pile where they found part of a ju- juvenile human skull. Near the house were pieces of burnt human skull, a crayon drawing on a board, and then one of the hats of the Winslow kids. They did find axes where when they, you could tell they had been washed, but when you pulled the handle out, what they call the eye, is there was actually blood caked in there. It was soaked in there. So they did find some evidence. Uh, I believe it was 51 bones they found. So the trial, it became known that he was covered in body hair. Plus, his actions made him seem like he's a primate. So he was nicknamed the Hairy Ape Man or the Hairy Ape Boy. And of course, I'm talking about Stuart there. His, um, what was it? His long underwear made of hair. That's like a a Dr. Seuss thing. That'll be uh, my first kid's book. It's interesting that he's called the Hairy Ape Man, partially because if you remember, if you listen to like my first or second episode, I was talking about Earl Leonard Nelson and how he was known as an ape man. Some of the claims that Stewart had during the trial were that he actually had a underground sex ring and that the boys he would bring back to his farm, he would have clients come over and use the boys as they wanted. So he was basically sex trafficking. So the thing is, though, he apparently named some names. They could never find any kind of proof for it. Sanford was like, there were no other dudes there. And Sanford, why would he lie? He had no motivation to lie if there were other guys there because he told everything else that Sanford did to him. So why would why would he leave that out? I think that's another thing where, of course, it's dramatic to say, well, I had a I had a human trafficking ring. So that was one of the claims. He also claimed that his dad molested him since he was 10. His big claim was that he was actually not the son of Louise and George. He was a product of incest between George and Winnie. So he would actually be Sanford's brother uncle. He also hinted at incest with his own mom. And his mom apparently went along with the whole idea that, oh, yeah, that he's George and Winnie's kid. He's not my kid. I just said that to protect Winnie. And then at one point, they also said George was also Sanford's real father. It's like a big incest circus. Anytime that he would have any kind of outrageous claims, his mom would just bend her story to go along with it. His mom even said at one point that Stuart did have a different father. 
She claimed that Stuart's dad was actually a nobleman and that she had married this nobleman, but then she realized that she didn't want him to be married out of his station. And so she divorced him and was with George. So first she makes it sound like that that is Stuart's biological father. And then later she's like, no, no, we were honorable. We didn't consummate our marriage. So I don't fucking know. But the whole point is Louise is just as dramatic and crazy as Stuart. Which is frustrating because it's almost impossible to know the actual truth coming from them. But I guess it makes it entertaining. I don't know. During the trial, Stewart actually defended himself. He, he did have some attorneys. He fired some. I think one quit. And then he wound up defending himself, which I can't even imagine what that would have been like. He even would question himself, which when you think of it, I guess that makes sense that if you are going to take the stand that you would question yourself if you're your own attorney. But it seems really weird. So I know like Ted Bundy defended himself, but I don't think that he actually asked himself questions. I don't think that he put himself on the stand. All that I can picture is the scene in Lord of the Rings with Gollum when he's arguing with himself. I don't know. I just can't think of any case where that would not be just funny. At any rate, he gets found guilty. So he's sentenced to be hanged. During this whole process, he kept jerking them around with where bodies are buried. So he would be like, oh, well, all right, I think I remember where this one body is, so take me out there and I'll show you. Well, then they'd take him out there and then he'd be like, oh, no, I don't remember. Or he'd be like, oh, never mind, I'm not going to help. And at one point, I guess he told a reporter, yeah, I just like jerking them around. So I like taking them a wild goose chases. So that's another super fucking frustrating thing that he did just because he thought it was fun. He was convicted of the Winslow boys and the teenager that he had beheaded and Louise was convicted of Walter Collins of his death and she got life. They were going to hang her but said she was a woman they didn't want to do it. There were points when she claimed she did everything and then she would recant everything and as you can imagine everything's all over the place but she was sentenced for Walter Collins and he was for the other ones. During the trial they did say that they did find some more victims that were still alive. One of them included a guy named Junior Thompson that was 10 years old. In August 1927, he said he was at the park with his father, mother, and sister. He was alone, and Stuart came up and started talking to him, and he said he would give him money to play with his nuts because they were tickling him. I don't know. Well, the kid's like, no. Well, then he's like, okay, well, I have a dog in my car. Do you want to come pet my dog? They get to towards the car, and the kid's kind of like, wait, this feels wrong. So he said no. Well, Stuart tries to pull him into the car, but the boy got away. So Stuart's chasing him. The boy sees his father. So the kid tells his dad what's going on. The dad pulls a knife out, just a little pocket knife out, and threatens Stuart, like, what the hell are you doing to my son? Well, then Stuart runs away. The guy chases him, but Stuart gets away. In 1928, in June, Stephen Black the aforementioned Stephen Black. He was 15. His dad was a mechanic. Stewart would come and hang out often and he would say, oh, my dad runs the Bank of Italy here and my mom's an assistant matron of a juvenile home. I've got two ranches and I'm going to sell one. So he would tell Stephen's mom and dad, like, okay, so I've got this ranch. I'm going to sell one. I want the dad to run this. And then later he's like, no, no, you know what? I'm going to buy a branch of Western Automobile and I want the dad to run that. But then he got an even better deal where he found an oil station and he wanted Stephen's father to run that. But then Stuart's father died. And so he wanted Stephen's dad to run the estate. Of course, the wife was like, it was, it was all obviously bullshit. Now, Stuart brought Stephen to the ranch a few times. He brought him three times. I guess a second time, according to Stephen, and I quote, he tried to screw him. A few weeks before that, 
He said he was going to take him to the, take him to the Hollywood Bowl, but instead he took him to a hotel and he was telling him, oh, I'm, I'm going to put you in my will so you can get my insurance when I die. And then when they're at the hotel, he's like, why don't you just, just lay in bed with me? That's all that I want. Just lay in bed. Well, maybe take your clothes off and we're just going to lay in bed together. And that's all we're going to do. And then he tried to screw him. Again, the kid's words. He didn't, the 15 year old didn't tell his parents. He said he wasn't afraid of him at any point in time. So he didn't really say anything to anyone. Stewart wound up getting hanged on October 2nd, 1930. Louise only served a decade, and she wound up spending the rest of her days with her husband. So George, George was never officially involved in anything. So he got to go, and he got a farm, and then she joined him on the farm. He tried to get it so she was cleared so she wouldn't have to be on parole or anything, but they were like, fuck that. And that's where they wound up dying. So what happened to Sanford? They did determine that everything that he did was under duress and that he was not a, a willing participant, so he would, did not have any official charges against him. They did send him to a reform school, which was apparently a new thing at that point. They were trying out where they would train the boys, kind of like a tech school, so they would train them on different skills and keep them in that structured atmosphere. He was supposed to serve five years but after I think it was like 23 months they wound up letting him go because he was doing so well and he was showing real promise so he got deported back to Canada in 1931 as soon as he was released to Canada he was 17 he lived with Jesse until he found his own place he painted houses he would slice and bundle grain he was always looking for work while doing temporary work which I mentioned before this was during the Great Depression so it was difficult to keep work so he would just do whatever he could his wife kept him active because she would see that he would start to sink into depressions June couldn't have a kid so they decided to adopt and instead of adopting a baby they wanted to adopt what is considered a harder hard to adopt kid which is kids who have been back and forth in foster homes and maybe have disciplinary problems things like that they wound up adopting three-year-old jerry who had been through several foster homes so in 1951 they adopted another son named robert from the same place he was three years old I did see it mentioned that sanford actively did not want his own biological kids so i'm not sure how true that is because in the road out of hell it says june couldn't have a kid but i can certainly understand why sanford might feel that way if he was worried that his genetics might carry something because he, he was always worried there's always a little part of him that was worried that he was inherently bad because of everything that happened they wound up actually changing the name of Wineville to Mira Loma because what they called the Wineville chicken coop murders because that became so infamous they were afraid it would permanently stain their community so they changed it to Mira Loma. There were actually other serial killers in that place later on. For example, 1966 apparently Zodiac's first victim was there. In 1977 Patrick Kearney committed 21 murders 1986 to 1991, there were 19 prostitutes murdered by what was known as the Riverside Prostitute Killer or the Lake Elsinore Killer, which apparently they were never identified. And then in 1995, William Suff killed 12 people. So no matter whether they changed the name or not, apparently they just could not shake the attraction serial killers had for that area. There's one other quick thing that I want to talk about, and I might even end up making it its own short little episode to go into details. But Walter Collins's mom, when she was looking for him, they found a boy who claimed to be Walter Collins. So they sent her a picture and she's like, okay, yeah, he looks looks like it could be him. So she paid to have him brought to her because he was in another state. And she's like, um, this isn't my son. But the cops were like, uh... It was awkward because they they were in a lot of shit. It looked bad. They already looked bad 
for several reasons. So they were hoping, oh, you know, this is going to look amazing. We reunite this mom with her missing son. So this is going to be awesome for everyone. And then she's like, no. So they're like, just try him. Just try him on for just try him out for like a week. And she was like, okay, I'll try him. What the fuck? Like, how fucked up is that? Like, the mom's not going to know her own fucking kid. She takes him home and she's just like, this is not him. Like, I just, this can't, I just know this is him. She, to the point where she got dental records. She got her son's dental records and compared them. And the dentist was even like, no, his teeth don't match. So she goes back to the cops and she's like, this isn't my son. I've got dental records. Well, they're like, fuck this. We can't deal with this. This is too much. So there's something called, I think, a code 12 that they could pull out for difficult people and have them thrown in an asylum. So they throw in an asylum until later on they get talking to the boy and the boy's like, well, you know, not Walter Collins. My name's Arthur Hutchins Jr. And I wanted to go to Hollywood to meet Tom Mix, who was a famous cowboy star. So he thought that was a good way to do it. How fucked up is that? So they release the woman from the asylum and quietly, and of course they try to keep it all swept under the rug so they don't look like assholes and idiots. And this poor woman went through all that. There's actually a movie called The Changeling based on it. It's confusing. There's a movie called The Changeling that's a horror movie about this dude who moves into this house and it's haunted and it's actually a good movie. I enjoy it. It's not that movie, which I got real confused when I was reading and they said The Changeling is based on it. I'm like, I'm not really sure how that would, you'd really be stretching to say that. But there's a different movie called Changeling and it's directed by Clint Eastwood. It has Angelina Jolie and John Malkovich and it's based on Mrs. Collins's plight through this whole adventure. I have not seen it yet. I'm definitely going to watch it as soon as I can. One more thing. I'm going to run through a list of shit that I found that was not true that were in my references and that it kind of annoyed me. In the Encyclopedia of Serial Killers by Brian Lane and Wilford Gregg, they call him Stanford Clark, which it's actually Sanford, which that's not a huge deal. They mentioned that he abducted boys for himself and unidentified clients, so they state that as if that's a truth and that was never proven. They say the Winslow brothers were 8 and 10 and not 12 and 10, so that's not correct. And there's no other reference that I saw where they say that they're 8 and 10. Everything else said 10 and 12. They say that Louise went to jail for killing the, what they call the headless Mexican, which that's not true at all. Plus, I keep calling her Sarah, and she actually went by Louise, which they're not exactly wrong because her name is Sarah Louise, but in everything else, she's called Louise. In The Big Book of Serial Killers by Jack Rosewood, he says the guy that they nicknamed, they nicknamed Stuart Nil, N-I-L, I have no clue where that came from. I tried to look that up. I didn't, don't remember seeing anything about that. So I'm not sure what that's from. If anybody can find out where that came from, I would love to know. Because if it's a real thing, I'm interested what the hell it means, where it came from. It says his dad wound up in an asylum and committed suicide. So that's not a thing. His dad was not put in an asylum and he didn't commit suicide. He died naturally. They also say that in 1926, Northcott, his mother, Sarah Louise, and Sanford Clark all settled in at the chicken ranch. Which is not true. His mom did not move in with them. So I can understand where maybe they thought that if they just did surface, like, if you're just doing like a surface sweep and you're just gleaming things for information and you're not really checking too deeply, I can understand where maybe that could get confusing since she was on the farm a lot, but she didn't technically live there. There's also, he says something like evidence suggested her son had ordered her to do it, but I don't know what evidence they'd be talking about that would make it look like he forced her to do it. I really, I don't know. He also said that Sanford's parents told immigration they wanted their son back, which is, as I said earlier, it was actually his sister, Jessie. It was not his parents. In The Human Monsters, Volume 3, Robert Keller says, 
that Winifred reported her son was kidnapped. Again, it was not his mom. It was his sister. Although it says Canadian Winifred Clark reported son Sanford Wesley Clark kidnapped and held in California by her nephew. And it's not her nephew. It's her brother. So that whole statement is confusing. Then in the Serial Killer magazine article, again, they state the dad died in asylum. The mom lived with him on the ranch. He was renting the victims out to pedophiles. Evidence suggested she was acting under orders from her son. The parents claim complained of immigration. And mom died in prison of old age, which as we know, she didn't. She died at the farm. She was only in prison for 10 years. It, those, those details are almost exactly the incorrect ones from the earlier source. So I wonder if he used that source as is. So yeah, just a few little details and when you're just running through um, like encyclopedias and stuff like that where they just have blurbs, sometimes you need to be careful because some of those details might not be 100% accurate. So just keep an eye out. Those were a few that I found. That was a lot. I have to admit this one really got to me uh, almost to the level that, well, in a different way, I guess, than David Parker Ray. His is the one I think that's gotten to me the most so far. This one really did get to me because obviously it involves children. And it really, uh, it was really hard. It's particularly despicable how coarse he was, how he just, he was so flippant about everything and how he was able just to make everything a story and change his stories around. And, you know, nothing was, there was no, never any kind of empathy for the boys or for Sanford. He was just truly driven by his desires and he just really didn't care. So he would use anyone in any way that he could, no matter what. Like he did not care that his mom was putting herself on the line for him, that she literally killed someone for him he would just take it as a given that of course of course she would why wouldn't she it's um a little befuddling that he's so blatant you know it just really hit home with me that for him it was truly just a game it was just a whim but at least Sanford it was two years of hell but at least he was able to get away and even though he carried that with him through the rest of his life at least he was able to have some kind of life he was 50 years with his wife and it seemed that he they genuinely got along and he was able to have a productive relationship with his sons and with the rest of his family so that was the most rewarding thing and I'm glad that I found the road out of hell because it definitely did feel rewarding that he got out and that he made something out of his life instead of letting it just weigh him down. If you're going to read one of the books, I would say read both of the books. Because both of the books together, I think, give you the best picture rather than reading, reading one without the other. Well, that is it for Gordon Stewart Northcott and the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders. I'm sure Gordon Stewart Northcott will pop up in other episodes, so you, this won't be the last that you hear from him and his long underwear hair. The next episode will be about the Harp Brothers, H-A-R-P-E, and maybe I'll slip another uh, short one in there about the changeling and what poor Christine Collins went through when Walter Collins went missing. If you'd like more information, you can go to murderlabmedia.com. You can find Murder Lab on iTunes and Google Play. You can get my RSS feed to listen on your favorite podcast app from MurderLabMedia.com. Thank you for entering the lab. Long underwear hair.